We are going to dive directly into our passage for this morning, wasting no time. But before we do that, would you join me in prayer for the illumination of the Holy Spirit? God, as we come to the scriptures this morning, we, we, we do so as an altar at which we expect to encounter the living God. We come to the scriptures this morning expectant, hopeful, wanting to hear your word afresh and be empowered by it, be uh, liberated by it, and be emboldened to, to, uh, to share the gospel and to be witnesses and to reflect the beauty of the kingdom of God in our lives. I pray that you would use this word as a lamp into our feet, a light into our paths, to make us your people, to make us your gospel-infused people. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, so if you have a translation of the Bible, uh, either in print or on some kind of digital device, you're welcome to turn with me to the letter of Galatians chapter 3. If not, you're welcome to follow along on the screens behind me. I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 23, goes like this. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that is the faith has, now that the faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all who were baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, Neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Amen. So this passage, most New Testament scholars agree, was written by Saul of Tarsus, a familiar character. Also goes by Paul in his travels throughout the Greek-speaking Roman Empire. He was an apostle of Jesus in the first century of the Common Era, and that means that he was sent to proclaim the good news, the gospel. And the gospel is that a Judean man, an itinerant preacher, a peasant, was crucified by the Roman Empire, which is a punishment reserved for insurrectionists and enemies of the state. This man, as it turns out, was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah and Lord of all nations. That means all people groups. He preached this good news, Saul, Paul did, all throughout the territories of the Roman Empire, including a region called Galatia, for which this letter is named. Cities in Galatia included Lystra, Derbe, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch. You can read about Paul preaching the gospel in these cities, planting churches in these cities in the 13th and 14th chapters of Acts. So Galatians is a letter written to the churches of that region. It was circulated among the churches, and it was specifically written to correct 
a false teaching that was prevalent in these churches. The false teaching was this, that Gentiles had to first Judaize. That means to convert to Judaism and keep the laws of the Torah in order to be followers of Jesus. And Paul adamantly opposes that teaching in the letter to the Galatians. He argues forcefully in that letter that if Gentiles have to keep the laws of the Torah to become followers of Jesus, and if the laws of the Torah are what connects people to God, then Christ died for nothing. That's what he says in chapter 2, verse 21. Our passage this morning, in chapter 3, is crucial to Paul's overall argument in the letter of Galatians. He's drawing an analogy here for the role that the law plays in the life of Christians from the Roman household that was familiar to many people that this letter was written to. Now, it may not be so familiar to us today, so I'm going to explain this analogy a little bit further. The analogy goes that there were these people in the first century in the Roman Empire who were part of the household, but they were slaves. And their job was to act as caregiver and guardian of the children in the household. They were called pedagogas or pedagogues. And this is from the same root word that we get our word pedagogy, which means the practice uh, or the method of teaching, right? So these were teachers. The pedagogos was a tutor, a guardian, a caregiver. Maybe a modern, anal- a modern parallel would be an au pair, right? Only difference is an au pair is not a slave. An au pair is a paid employee. But the Similarity is that they live with the family and they become like one of a a member of the family because they care for and protect the children over the course of many years. So Paul's analogy is that in a similar way to the pedagogos, the laws of the Torah served an important and useful function preparing Israel for their Messiah. The laws of the Torah trained Israel, protected Israel, provided for Israel, but like the children of the household, when they come of age, they're no longer under the care and protection of the pedagogos. Paul is saying that Jesus' advent into the world, his life, his ministry, his teachings, and particularly his death and resurrection, are the coming of age of Israel. And now, all the people groups of the world can be gathered in and become part of a new family that God is creating. All nations may now become co-heirs with Israel of the promise made to Abraham. Way back in Genesis, at the beginning of the Torah, God promises Abraham that through his seed, which means offspring or descendant, God was going to bless all the families of the world, all the people groups of the world, through Abraham. Paul is convinced by his experience encountering the risen Christ, his experience with the Holy Spirit, and his extensive study of the scriptures, that all of this is taking place in and through Jesus. And that's the very center of Paul's theology. God in Christ has ushered in this new era, establishing a new family, not based on the same boundary markers that set apart the Jewish people. Boundary markers like like circumcision and keeping kosher and keeping Sabbath. But now people are marked off as God's people based on their shared new life in Christ. 
Paul believed that people from all ethnic groups could be joined with Jesus in a new human family, a new way of being human community together. And he believed that this new humanity was a present glimpse of future shalom. The shalom that will one day characterize the whole world where there will be no more war, no more violence, no more division, no more hatred, no more loneliness, no more pain. Because everyone will, be, will, be, will belong to each other and everyone will flourish together. This is why Paul shifts gears suddenly in verse 26. You'll notice he goes from his analogy about the pedagogos all of a sudden to talking about baptism. And we have to pause and say, for us, it's weird to, to go from this analogy about the pedagogos all of a sudden into baptism. But for Paul, it made a lot of sense. It was a perfect segue because Paul is asking, how does a person, regardless of their ethnicity, become a member of this new community of people joined with Christ and with one another? And the answer for Paul is very obvious. Baptism. Baptism is the answer. Baptism is the start of new life in Christ. Baptism is an outward sign of the work that God has done in a person's heart and mind. Baptism is also a, a mystical joining together of a person with Christ's life and with Christ's spirit. Baptism is initiation into the body of Christ. So let me make a few like advertisements. Next week, we will be welcoming Asher James Kruger into the family of God through baptism. It's a very exciting celebratory time in our church. And... Uh, if you have any questions about infant baptism, that is completely normal and natural. I did. In fact, I was pretty adamantly opposed to infant baptism for, for some part of my life. So talk to me after the service. We could talk about infant baptism. But next week, we are going to celebrate together the, the introduction, the initiation of Asher James into the family of God through baptism. Second advertisement is that next week, I'm going to kick off something that we're calling Misfit You. Miss for You is a series of learning sessions, interactive learning sessions, learning community together, uh, where we're going to be exploring five key questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he die? What is the Bible? How do we read it? And what is baptism? I'm going to be doing this in Theater Moo uh, shortly before the service, from 8.30 to 9.30 before the service. And these sessions are designed to explore the Christian faith and culminate with baptism in a very similar way to how they did in the early church. In the early church, uh, a person would be baptized after a season of learning and practice. You had to become part of the community and then you were baptized. Also, it's kind of the pattern of uh, what's called confirmation, if you're familiar with confirmation. Confirmation is when an infant is baptized, later as, as they grow up and they're entering young adulthood, they get an opportunity to explore the faith and make a decision to confirm their baptism. I have a coworker in my, in my day job who was baptized as an infant in the Methodist tradition. And she talks glowingly about her confirmation class, how formative it was and how, uh, what an amazing opportunity it was for her to explore her faith. So that's kind of the pattern of this series we're calling Misfit You over the summer. I want to invite you to join me for those sessions, especially if you have questions or you want to dig deeper into these questions, I think it's going to be a really fun time of learning together. I'm going to try to make it as interactive as possible. Okay, advertisement's over. Now, it might not be obvious to us, 
at first. But this passage in Galatians 3, it's also where we find a lot of the, the, the ideas that are in our mission and vision as a church, as Roots Covenant Church. A crucial part of our mission and vision is that we want to be a new people, a new family rooted in Christ. We see ourselves as a community of misfits on a mission, finding identity in Jesus. These ideas of being a new people, united in Christ, having our identity found in Christ, being a community, all of these are, are found in this passage of Galatians 3. But these ideas have to come down out of heaven and they have to put on flesh in our real-life community, right? And that brings me to a confession that I must make about this passage. It's directly related to uh, our series that we're in right now, actually wrapping up this week, DTR, Exploring Relationship Dynamics. My confession is that my interpretation of this passage has shifted dramatically over the years. And uh, discussing that process will simultaneously touch on uh, how I view the relationship between men and women in the church and the process by which people change their minds about their interpretation of the Bible. So I'm going to share some of my story um, of how I changed my mind and, and the influences that were, that were important in my life. And I think it's going to shed some light on how we might walk with other people who are in that same process. Amen? So to start, I need to define some terms. First term that I need to define is complementarianism. That's a big, wordy, nerdy word, fun word. Complementarian is someone who in, uh, is not someone who enjoys giving compliments. That's a common misconception. <laughs> Different compliment. That's compliment with an I. This is compliment with an E. A complementarian with an E is a term used to describe someone who believes that the Bible teaches gender role hierarchy. Superiority, inferiority, hierarchy. A complementarian believes that women are taught in Scripture to submit to men, but men are not taught to submit to women. A complementarian believes that women are equal in essence to men, but subordinate in role to men. A complementarian believes that women are prohibited from occupying offices in the church uh, like senior pastor, which isn't a biblical office at all. It's not in the Bible. But they cannot, they're prohibited from teaching men in an authoritative way in the church. Most of the biblical support for this view comes from a few passages in the letters of Paul. Way back in January, I preached a sermon on one of those passages, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 40. That sermon was called, One Spirit, Many Voices. You can go back and listen to that if you want to hear my interpretation of that passage. It's on the podcast feed and it's on the website. But other passages used to support this view are the qualification for elders in Titus and 1 Timothy. And there's a famous verse in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that says, I forbid a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. Well, that settles that, right? You got one verse in one letter in all of the Bible, and no more debate is needed, right? Um, What was odd about me being a complementarian at the time is that I came to the Christian faith through the Pentecostal tradition. And the Pentecostal tradition is egalitarian. That's another big wordy term that I'm going to define. It means in this context, 
someone who believes the Bible teaches equality between men and women, both in essence and in role. An egalitarian believes that women can occupy authoritative teaching roles in the church, as long as they're called and gifted to do so, just like men. So I came to faith through this Pentecostal tradition, and our home base is not in Paul's letter, Paul's letters. Our home base is in Acts 2. And so uh, when it comes to the relationship between men and women, our starting place is the Holy Spirit gifts both men and women. So Acts 2 says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see vision. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So for Pentecostals, the spirit is the great equalizer of men and women. What qualified a person for ministry wasn't gender, but giftedness by the Spirit. And so I was an oddball in my Pentecostal tradition, especially in Bible college, where I was one of the only complementarians. And the reason why I became a complementarian is I came under the influence of uh, some Calvinist thinkers, so Reformed thinkers, uh, what, might be, what some people called the Big Blue Book. That's what it was called back in those days. Kind of like a second Bible for complementarians. It's called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. About this thick. I should have brought it and like plopped it on the pulpit right there. Um, edited by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. The cover says that in 1993, it was Christianity Today's Book of the Year. So there's that. One of the major challenges, though, to my complementarianism in those days was that two of my favorite professors were women. Dr. Joan Miller is a Guyanese-American pastor and professor who was president of a Pentecostal seminary in Guyana before she moved to the States. She moved to New York. Um, And she had what sounds like a very successful deliverance ministry. She was a bold preacher. She didn't just teach the Bible, she lived the Bible. She prayed for people's healing and they were healed. She cast out demons. She preached in the streets. When I, when I had her as professor, she was in her 50s, and she had never been married. Her, her life was just completely committed to the kingdom of God. I also, one of my favorite professors was also uh, Dr. Teresa Rieger. Um, while she was teaching uh, in my school, she was simul- simultaneously teaching at Xavier University, which is, uh, has a special claim to fame. Xavier University in New Orleans is the only historically black and Roman Catholic university in North America. So she taught there as well. She was simultaneously planting a new church and working on her PhD at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, which is associated with the Southern Baptists who don't believe women can be pastors. She was inspiration to me. She was someone who bridged the church and the academy. She was someone who bridged the heart and the mind, who saw beauty in all the many traditions of the worldwide church. And it was my relationship with Dr. Rieger that began to shift my thinking about the relationship between men and women. There were several months in between when I graduated from Bible college and when Oshida and I got married. And so I was uh, in need of a place to live. (laughs) And she and her husband had raised three adopted boys, and they were all out of the house. So these empty nesters invited me to stay with them until I could move in with Oshida. And I'll never forget the night that Dr. Rieger came home, and she sat on the couch next to me, and she said, this school 
that I'm in is causing me to, call, to question my call to the ministry. She said, I got, I've got to decide, do I believe the Bible or do I believe I'm called to be a pastor? And even though I was a complimentarian at the time, this indignation rose up in me. And I said, if you question your call to the ministry, everybody got to question their call to the ministry. If you question your call to the ministry, I got to question my call to the ministry. Because she was such an inspiration to me, and I thought, I thought so highly of her. How, how dare you question your call to the ministry? You're my mentor. Dr. Rieger was wrestling with the same thing that I came to wrestle with in that time, and that was another big word, hermeneutics. In this context, hermeneutics is a fancy word for biblical interpretation. She and I were both immersed in a world that had a very rigid, wooden interpretation of the, the Bible. If Paul wrote to the first century church in Ephesus that women couldn't be pastors, well, then that was universally true for all time. But before I had joined a Latinx Baptist church 10 years later, I had never been greeted at the door of the church with a holy kiss. How many of you have been greeted at the door of the holy kiss? But that's something Paul commanded many, many times in his letters. I knew many complimentarian women who wore braided hair and jewelry. That's also in the same passages as the prohibition of women pastors. So I had to wrestle with what I believed about interpreting the Bible. How is it that some things are considered cultural artifacts of a bygone era? But when female subordination gets taught, that's an eternal principle that transcends culture. That was odd to me, and I had to wrestle with that. Dr. Rieger challenged my thinking around the relationship between men and women by modeling in front of me the reality that God had indeed called and gifted women to be pastors and professors. I had to reconsider my interpretation of scripture in light of my personal experience with a real human being who has the same Holy Spirit as me. Now, is that biblical? Aren't we taught that our personal experiences don't matter? Aren't we taught that what the Bible says trumps our personal experiences? I was certainly taught that. But in, in, in reality, we all do that. Our personal experiences do inform our interpretation of the Bible. And it is biblical. I'm going to show you. The Apostle Peter was a devout Jew. He never violated the laws of the Torah. He kept kosher, and he never stepped foot inside of a Gentile's home. Because, of course, Gentiles were unclean, right? They did unclean things, and if you stepped inside their house, you defiled yourself. But we read in Acts chapter 10 that God specifically challenged that way of thinking. After the resurrection of Jesus, God called Peter to go to the home of a, of a Gentile, a God-fearing Gentile, and baptize him into the fledgling church. Peter eventually reluctantly obeyed God, and I, I'd encourage you to read that entire account in, in Acts 10, but I'm going to just choose a few excerpts that I think are particularly relevant. Verse 28 of chapter 10 in Acts is particularly relevant. Peter said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or to visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Verse 34 and 35 say, Then Peter began to speak. 
I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what's right. Verses 44 through 48. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So the personal experiences that the apostles had when the Holy Spirit was poured out on Gentiles caused them to go back to the Bible and reconsider their interpretation. Paul and Barnabas saw Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit all throughout the Roman Empire. Everywhere they went, they saw the same thing happening. When they took this news back to the apostle James in Jerusalem, here's what Acts 15 says. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Things known from long ago. This is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. So what's going on here? James reinterprets a prophecy from the book of Amos in light of the testimonies about God's work among the Gentiles from Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. Before the ministries of these apostles, James couldn't have dreamed that Amos was talking about Gentiles being added into some kind of new family created by the Messiah. But because of the personal experiences of the apostles, they went back to the scriptures with a new lens, a Christ-centered Holy Spirit-illuminated interpretive lens. Being witness to the calling and giftedness of women, like Drs. Miller and Rieger, challenged me to go back to the scriptures and read it differently. There were also other people in my life who influenced me in this direction. Around that same time, after I graduated from Bible college, I was, living, I was still living in New Orleans, and I started meeting with a few friends who were campus pastors. And we would just drink coffee and theologize. We were debate buddies. We liked to talk theology and, and just spar. And one of my debate buddies was a Pentecostal campus minister, still is, Pentecostal campus minister in New Orleans named Matt DeGear. Matt specifically challenged me about my complementarianism. He pointed out that there were areas of my biblical interpretation that were inconsistent. He pointed out that there were 
places where egalitarianism made more sense of the biblical text than complementarianism. And I'll be honest with you, I did not appreciate that pushback at the time. At the time, I hated losing those debates. But in time, I appreciated Matt's loving challenge. And Matt was not the last person to challenge me on this as well. I have to give a shout out to two covenant pastors, Christina Tingloff and Brian Estrella. When I was coming into the ECC, Christina and Brian also challenged me about my sort of lingering complementarianism that was hanging around. They pointed me to some of the resources that ultimately put the nail in the coffin of my complementarianism. And I wanna share some of those resources with you so that you can go on your own journey. Uh, the first one I would recommend is a, a short pamphlet that the ECC produce, produced called Called and Gifted. It's very short, I can send you the PDF, you can read it in 10 minutes. A few other resources I'd highly recommend are an article by Klein Snodgrass, A Case for the Unrestricted Ministry of Women. Email me and I'll send you that PDF. Two of my professors from Gordon-Conwell, Ida and Bill Spencer, wrote Beyond the Curse, Women Called to Ministry. Scott McKnight has a book called The Blue Parakeet with several good chapters on women in ministry and biblical interpretation. N.T. Wright has a really helpful essay on women in ministry called The Biblical Basis for Women's Service to the Church. And then uh, there's a, a counterpoint to the Big Blue Book called The Big Red Book, and that one is called Discovering Biblical Equality. That's a powerhouse resource, like this thick. And then I'd also recommend How I Changed My Mind About Women in Leadership, uh, compelling stories from, from prominent evangelicals. Tony Campolo's in there. Um, John and Nancy Ortberg are in there. So those are some of the resources. Take a, take a picture of that, or I can send it to you, and check those out. My experiences with women of God who were called and gifted, combined with the strong yet loving challenges from friends like Matt, Christina, and Brian, and aided by scholarly research and writing by some brilliant theologians, shifted my way of thinking, how I read the Bible, and how I viewed the relationship between women and men in the church. What I've come to realize is this. When I was a complementarian, when I was a complementarian, I read Galatians 3 as if being in Christ was some kind of spiritual status before God. A salvation ticket to heaven. But when Paul is talking about the oneness of all those who are baptized into the Messiah, he's not merely talking about some spiritual status before God. He's also talking about the social reality of the relationships between men and women, Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, in the body of Christ. The real life flesh and blood relationships. How do I know this? Because in the previous chapter, Galatians chapter 2, Paul recounts this incident that took place in Antioch. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul says that he had to directly confront the apostle Peter for withdrawing from the Gentiles during the communal meal of the church. Galatians chapter 2 verse 14 says, When I saw that Peter and Barnabas were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, 
Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Peter was withdrawing from Gentiles socially, withdrawing from fellowship with them, as if they were not welcome in the church, as if they were unclean, as if he had not witnessed himself them receive the Holy Spirit just like Jews. And Paul calls this a denial of the truth of the gospel. That is, that is very significant. The gospel is that God in Christ is renewing all things, destroying every dividing wall created to keep humans away from God and away from each other. The gospel is that God's future kingdom of shalom is breaking into the here and the now. A glimpse of Revelation 7, when all peoples will be united together in worship of the Lamb, in all of our cultural and ethnic diversity. Peter was denying that gospel. Oneness in Christ, the kind that Paul is talking about, is not merely theoretical oneness. Oneness in Christ, the kind that Paul is talking about, isn't a a salvation ticket to heaven. No, the oneness in Christ that Paul is talking about is social. It is ecclesiastical. It's talking about our unity and equality in our diversity. The oneness that Paul is talking about is not sameness. It's not uniformity. It's interconnectedness, interdependence. The oneness that Paul is talking about is a church that embodies the truth that Jesus is Lord of all peoples, that Jesus is our shalom, that Jesus unites us in one spirit. Here's how Ida Spencer puts it in her book, Beyond the Curse. She says, Gentiles were not only perceived as equals to Jews before God, they were also treated as equals to Jews by the early Christians. Always theory precedes practice, or practice assumes an already held theory. The theory that justification by faith creates an equality between Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male and female, precedes the practice. Transferring the theory into practice takes time. To be one in Christ, Jesus, is never simply a spiritual instead of social statement. Oneness is always spiritual and social. Because God is one, the church is to be one in unity. It's members living in harmony, economically and spiritually interdependent, serving the interests of others in humility, even as Jesus Christ, to the extent of death. Unless this oneness of standing before God in the Messiah takes on flesh and blood and shows up in our real-life community relationships, then it's no oneness at all. It's a denial of the gospel. In the same exact way that Paul denounced Peter for treating the Gentiles like second-class citizens, men treating women like second-class citizens is an equally offensive denial of the gospel. Galatians chapter 3 is a glimpse 
into how the Apostle Paul viewed the concrete reality of new life in Christ. The true family of Abraham is not formed by ethnicity, not by class, and nor is it a, a matter of male privilege. We are joined together by our shared allegiance to Jesus as Lord, by our common baptism into one body. Our God-given distinctions are no longer divisions. In Christ, our diversity is not an obstacle to our oneness. Our differences are our strengths. Just like a body has to be made up of different body parts in order to work together. This means that in the exact same way that Jews and Gentiles are equally called and gifted by God's Spirit, men and women are equally called and gifted by God's Spirit to serve in the church, to lead in the church, to preach in the church, to administer the sacraments. And we as a body are called to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you for the way in which you take us on a journey of discovering more about you, more about ourselves, more about one another. I thank you for the body of Christ that is your laboratory, a place where you work on our hearts and our minds, how you take us on uh, a journey of discovering what the scriptures are saying to us now, what they mean for us now in real life flesh and blood relationships. I thank you for the journey that I've been on and I thank you for the, the men and women who have challenged me, encouraged me, pressed on me to, to study, to learn and to grow. I pray that we would be a people that do that for one another, that we would spur one another on to, to seek your truth, to honor one another, to recognize and affirm the callings and the giftedness that each one of us has. And I thank you for the women in this church and in the body of Christ that you have called and you have gifted equally and powerfully just like you have called and gifted men. Thank you that we are a body that is unified in our diversity, not in spite of our diversity. Thank you for the body of Christ, the ways in which our, our body parts are working together to be your hands and feet in the world. And I pray that you would make us a gospel-infused community, a community that declares the truth that you are redeeming all things, making all things new. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen.